0: Well, I want us to start out here today just by considering uh, John 21. I hope you have your Bibles because we're going to be kind of flipping around quite a bit here through a number of different passages. This is not uh, necessarily an expositional sermon. It is going to be a topical consideration of our subject matter before us today. So there's going to be a number of passages we're going to need to look at here together. But I want us to start in John 21 because it really is a very interesting passage there. Uh, That that final chapter in the book of John, O opens up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And if any of you have ever been there on that shore, you know exactly what it looks like. You know exactly what it is like. And one of the greatest experiences that you can have in the land of Israel is watching a sunrise kind of peek over those mountains and cast its brill- the brilliant light down onto the Sea of Galilee. And that's where John 21 takes place, is right there on that seashore. Where waves would quietly have been lapping against that shoreline. There's a fire crackling in the sand. It's an early morning after an extremely long and surprising night where Jesus had come in his post resurrection appearance to to his disciples. And as that sunrise creeps up over the mountains to the east, as the risen Lord sits there on the beach with a few of his closest disciples, All of those disciples were sitting there that morning trying to process and fathom what had just happened to them a very few short weeks before, where the Lord himself, the one that Peter had confessed that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, had been put to death and their world had been completely rocked and shattered until all of a sudden he, he surprises them by being resurrected and standing there in their midst. And here, again, several weeks later, the Lord stands there with these chosen few men as they begin to try to figure out what do we do next, right? It's an amazing little narrative story that's kind of tucked in there right at the end of the Gospel of John. And all of them were sitting there trying to figure out what they were going to do. And, and one of those disciples in particular, Peter, had a problem, Because as he sat there, his soul was burdened by his rejection of his Lord in the Lord's greatest hour of quote-unquote need. And yet here they sit together, both of them knowing what had happened and exactly what Peter had done. And you end up having one of the most amazing conversations that I have found in all of scripture where Jesus, filled with his divine and infinite mercy, grace, and wisdom, and love, he begins to engage Peter very earnestly. And he says to Peter a number of times, a very poignant, pointed question. He says, he says this, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? do you love me? And Jesus, and and Peter answers again and again and again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus responds to him with a very clear call that would govern the rest of Peter's life. He says, then tend my lambs. Peter, then shepherd my sheep. Peter, tend my sheep. See, Peter's marching orders were extremely clear and they were given to him by the Lord himself in a very direct fashion. And as Peter is reconciled to his master, it's not just a reconciliation that takes place, you see. It is a calling into a lifetime of active service to shepherd the flock of God that is amongst you. And it's amazing if we kind of fast forward the clock just a little bit, And we turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. I want you to go there with me, and I want you to actually see this now. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter understood that he had this clear calling upon his life to shepherd the flock, and he knew that he was called to do that work until the time came when he would be killed because Jesus told him there on that beach that that would happen. He would give his life for his Lord. But here in 1 Peter chapter 5, which is written just prior to that fatal action actually taking place where Peter's life is taken from him, it's interesting what he says as, as his final departing words to the next generation of men who are responsible to care for the flock of God. Listen to what he says and compare it very carefully to the instructions that Jesus had given to him. Peter repeats the command that Jesus given, gave to him using exactly the same words. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It's exactly what Jesus told him to do there on that beach. And here, three or four decades later, Peter repeats the command and gives it to other men so that they will be faithful to do exactly the same thing as well. He says, you must do this, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to, here it is, the will of God. You see, the day on the beach in Galilee, it was clearly in Peter's mind as he pens these words. He uses exactly the same phrasing and language. It's clear from reading this that the call of Christ on that day back in Galilee on that beach it stuck with him. It motivated him. It instructed him. It, it gave him guidance on how to be faithful. And it, it caused him to have guide rails in his life where he could say, I can do nothing other than this. I must be faithful to shepherd the flock of God. And that calling from Christ, it, it was critical to Peter's understanding of his role as a pastor and a shepherd and a, and a faithful apostle. And, and decades later, he is still doing it faithfully, steadfastly. And now here he is, we see him giving instructions to a new generation. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I look into this text and, and there's an obvious and a very key question that I have because he says, you are to do this shepherding according to the will of God. You see, Peter, Peter sat on a beach with Jesus and he heard with his own ears, Jesus instruct him saying, you are called to do one thing, to shepherd, tend, and feed the sheep. That's what you're called to do. Peter heard it audibly. He heard Jesus instruct him personally and and everything about his preparation with Christ convinced him him that he was called to this work. (laughs) And yet as he repeats the command here, he says, do it according to the will of God. And the question we must ask ourselves, the key question that I think is the subject of this very seminar today is, how do we know that this is the will of God for our lives? How do we know if we are called? We do not have the benefit of hearing Jesus say to us audibly on the beach by the fire as the sun rises, shepherd my sheep. So if we can't hear him say that directly as Peter had the benefit of hearing him say it, how do we know that he has given that specific command to us? How do we go about ascertaining that? And, and that really is what I want us to work through together here today, and I hope that's why you are here in this seminar here today, is because you want the answer to that very critical question that Peter poses to us this morning. Short of hearing Jesus audibly say, shepherd my sheep, how are we to know that we have the same calling on our lives that will enable and guide and direct us just as it did for Peter as well? Well, that's the question we must ask. Now, in the New Testament, there is a specific word for call. It is the Greek word kaleo, and it's used 148 different times. And it's used in a variety of different contexts to talk about a variety of different things. It's first used to talk about a general calling. And you can see a very clear example of that kind of calling. And it's used in, you could say, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And it's, it's the call to salvation. That's the general calling that, that God issues to those who are elect who must be saved, right? It's the calling to be saved. Look at how it's used there in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him, here it is, who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Okay, So there's this idea of a general calling, the call to salvation, the call to come out of sin, be saved, and live in the light. That's the general calling. Okay, Then there's an idea of a specific kind of a calling. We see an example of that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Right, where that is the idea that every single person who has been saved, the general calling, has also called to serve. Where God has prepared good works for every person, so that we might walk in them. Every single person who has received the general calling of God is also called to turn around then and serve and to use those gifts in a very particular way. So there's a a, a general calling, a specific calling. And then the final way that the term is used is referring to a vocational calling, and that is what we're talking about here today. And I think we can find an example of that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. I'm going to be throwing out a lot of scripture references. We're not going to go to all of them because we don't have time, but if you guys are thinking through what is my calling, you might want to write these down and look at them later on, okay? But in Ephesians 4, verse 7, we're told that the Holy Spirit, God himself, gives specific grace for the exercise of specific gifts for very specific tasks within the church. And one of those categories of specific tasks for which there is a specific gift, for which there is specific grace, is a category that is devoted to being pastors and teachers. So I think it's very clear to us that we can discern the fact that there is such a thing as a call to ministry, that if you believe in the idea of gifting, you must also believe in the idea of calling. And that was the answer that, uh, that Pastor MacArthur gave to me when I asked him the question originally as I was thinking through the seminar, is there such a thing as calling? I should probably get that figured out before I could proceed to teach semin- the seminar. <laughs> And he answered to me, he says, well, of course. And he kind of had this quizzical look upon his face. Of course. If you believe in the idea of gifting, you have to believe in the idea of calling, right? So I think we can kind of start out here today by establishing the foundational ground that there is such a thing as a calling into ministry because the Holy Spirit does give particular gifts to pastors and teachers for the work of edification, for the equipping of the saints. Okay? So there is such a thing. Now... How do we find that idea being evidenced in the pages of Scripture? I'm just starting here by kind of setting a groundwork and trying to convince you all that that there is a reality of calling, okay? Scripture talks about the idea of a pastoral responsibility in a number of different ways. And all of those different ways reveal facets of pretty much the same idea, that idea being that God does appoint and direct specific certain individuals into his full-time work as their primary life's occupation. And this is not necessarily an exhaustive list, it, it's certainly not an exhaustive list, but I think it it does give you kind of a of a of a tasting, a sampling of the wide variety of ways that this concept is talked about in scripture, okay? Galatians 1:15, Paul uses the words uses the word aphorizō. It's a word that means to be set apart unto the service of the Lord. In Acts chapter 16, verse 10, Luke uses the word proskeleo, which actually means we are called. I mean, it's pretty specific there. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, he uses the words dokimazo, which means we are approved for God's service. 2 Timothy 2, 2, Paul uses the word paretithemy, which means we have been entrusted with a specific ministry of the word. 1 Timothy 1.12 uses a, a variation of the same word, tithemi, but the idea behind that Greek word is to be specifically placed somewhere for a specific kind of work. Okay, We keep going through. In Acts chapter 26, verse 16, we find the word prokerizo, which means to be appointed to a specific work. In Titus 1.5, we find the word cathistami, which means to be charged with a specific work. And in Acts 14.23, we find the word kerateneo, which means to be assigned to a specific work. So there's not one word throughout the whole New Testament that reflects this concept, but rather there's a multiplicity of different Greek words that are used that all have slightly different facets to the very same idea. And that overarching idea is that God has carved out a specific place and a specific work for specific individuals who are specifically gifted to undertake and accomplish that Work. So hopefully that's enough to show that this is a work of God that he does in entrusting the care of his people to specific individuals. God gives gifts to his church in the form of people who are called and gifted to lead it and instruct it effectively. So there is such a thing as a call to ministry, and I think it's very often discussed. We had a a prospective student dinner last night for the Master's Seminary, and Dr. Lawson went off at length, and it was very good and very passionate, as he is wont to do, um, about the call to ministry. It's very often discussed. We hear this idea of calling all over the place, but we, we very rarely hear it being defined and kind of ferreted out as to what does it mean and how do I know if I've got it? And that is important because few concepts are so critical to a lifetime in ministry than a thorough understanding of this concept. So the questions that I want us to answer, that was all by way of introduction, are these. What is the call to ministry? That's question number one, and we'll, we'll walk our way through that. Question number two, how do I know if I have it? And question number three, what do I do about it if I think I do? Okay, okay. So let's start with each of those questions. What is it? What is the call to ministry? Well, I want us to look first at exactly what it is not, okay? If we're going to produce a definition here, let's start by saying this is what the call to ministry is not, okay? First, it is not an experience, okay? The call to ministry is not an experience, You look throughout the Old Testament and there are many experiential kinds of callings there. You look at Isaiah, for instance, the coal upon his lips. You look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. There's all these experiences where the Lord appears to them personally and there's some kind of initiation that takes place into the work of the ministry. And I think oftentimes people in our world today can read those kinds of texts as God interacts with his people in a a very unique uh, Old Testament kind of way. And when taken prescriptive, that means if we look at that and expect that to be our same experience, it really can set up a false expectation of what the call of ministry is supposed to be. You see, many men get hung up because they wait for some kind of existential Isaiah chapter one kind of an experience. And I mean, I'll just be honest with you, if you're waiting for a coal to descend out of heaven and touch your lips, that is not going to happen. Okay, you're gonna to have to do without the coal, without the coal because you're not gonna have that in your call, okay? You're not gonna have a voice from heaven. You're not going to have some kind of defining moment where there are angels singing and all sorts of things happening where you realize all of a sudden, ding, I'm called to ministry, right? That's not, that's not the way it works. The call to ministry is not throwing out a fleece and waiting to see if it's wet in the morning, okay? This is not a Gideon sort of a deal, okay? The call to ministry is not an experience, okay? That's the first thing. It is also not a choice, okay? When we're talking about going into ministry, we're not talking about choosing your, 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 your kind of pizza here, okay? This is not a, a sausage versus pepperoni kind of a choice, okay? It's not something that you get to choose to do or not to do. It is a divine kind of mandate where God is saying to you, this is what I have for you, and you reject it at your own peril, okay? It's not a choice, Just as the call to salvation was divinely instituted and the call to service was God ordained, the call to ministry is not a suggestion. It is divine sovereign direction. Either God, in his sovereignty, has outlined this path for you or he hasn't. But it's not up to you to choose from a Rolodex of career paths, right? You know, I could be a pastor, I could be a firefighter, I could be a policeman, or I could be. Um, I don't know, a nurse. That's not what this is. Either God has outlined this work specifically for you or he has not. But this is not like a career fair where you get to get on the list and just pick. Okay, very important. And that leads us to the next one. It's not a career path either. It's not a choice. Neither is it a career path. Ministry is not a career To say that you are in vocational full time ministry is not the same thing as saying that I am in my career building a dental practice or having a law firm. Those are careers. Ministry is not like that. It's a calling. You see, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. I've met with a lot of alumni who are all coming kind of back home here this week and they want to talk about the ministries that God has them in, where he has planted them. And there's one common theme that I have found in talking with all those men. And that's this, ministry is life. And life, for the man who is called, is ministry. You don't get to count your hours in the ministry. You don't get to take the next step up the corporate ladder. It's not a career path, you see. And that's very important to understand going into the conversation. So it's not an experience, not a choice, not a career path. It's also not a self-appointment. Charles Bridges, a pastor who wrote well over 100 years ago, he says this, It is a direct act of usurpation to take unwarranted authority in the church of Christ. And woe to the man who would grasp something on his own like that. You see, the call to ministry is not a self-appointment where I place myself into it. It is an appointment from the hand of God, not of men, not your elders even necessarily, not your parents, not your spouse, not even yourself. You cannot place yourself into ministry. You must obey the will of God in entering it. It's not a self-appointment. It's also not to be self-serving. You see, this is not your work. It's God's work, and it's the most serious business in the world, and therefore, it must be all about, at all times, him and his glory, rather than you and yours. It's not all about you. I think that point's driven home very clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul says, God has placed you into his service. He is the one who does it, and therefore, he is to be the object of it as well, Okay. Next, it is not a call to ease. You know, I sometimes will hear people in my fellowship group joking with me and I I take it in the right spirit and it's okay, but they'll joke. They'll say, now that you've done your work for the week, what's next? And usually they say it at 12.05 after I finish preaching, right, like, hey, that was easy. Now you're done, what do you do? And some people, they do wonder, right? I mean, the pastor preaches a sermon, he goes home on on Sunday afternoon and he kicks back in his easy chair and then he plays golf Monday through Friday. And around Saturday at noon, sometime he gets serious about trying to figure out what what should I say next, right? That's not what the ministry is. It's not a life of country clubs and Zagat rated restaurants, okay? Ministry, shepherding is hard and it is very dirty kinds of work. You see, I hate to break it to you, but you might not understand this, people have problems, right? I mean, they actually have like real life problems where it's like, I mean, you enter into some of these counseling cases and you're saying, that is a mess. How do we clean this up? I mean, ugly problems. And and sometimes when you try to help them, just like sheep, they bite, right? It's hard. It's not a call to an easy life. Finally, a call to ministry is also not a last resort. Right, where some people will look at this and they'll say, well, there's nothing else that I can do. I guess I'm called to ministry. No, wrong way, right? Turn around, go back to, go, go back to start, do not pass go. You, you need to start your, your, your thinking process over. James 1 talks about, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because as such, there will be a stricter kind of judgment for you. This is not a last resort. This is something that you should look at with great dignity and gravitas and consider extremely carefully, okay? So if we're talking about what is the call to ministry, I wanna begin by saying, okay, here are all the things that it is not. Because I think it's very important to clear all those misconceptions that are actually very common, completely out of the way and get rid of them, okay? What it is, it is a faithful, it is a call to faithful proclamation. Second Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4.2 says very clearly, and it's not a suggestion, it's not a, a good idea, it's a command. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. This is what you're to do. Call the ministry is a call to faithful proclamation. It's also a call to faithful shepherding. We've already looked at 1 Peter 5, verse 2. He says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And then finally, it is a call to faithful stewardship. 2 Timothy 2:2. Paul says to his disciple and to the man who he was training up in ministry: he says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See it as a, as a true stewardship, right? This is the call to ministry. It's a call to faithfulness, which is the theme of this conference. If you've listened to all these messages and you, and you walk away saying, I am not a faithful man, then you are not called to ministry. Because the fundamental sum total of the call to ministry is a call to faithfulness in a number of pursuits. The pursuit of preaching, the pursuit of shepherding, the pursuit of stewarding the people of God. This is the call to ministry. And what must undergird all of those pursuits is this idea of an overarching faithfulness. Are you willing to be faithful in those pursuits? And are you willing to do them, come what may, because you know that the hand of God is upon your life and he has instructed you to do them, right? Like Jeremiah, God says to him, and this is like the most discouraging call to ministry ever, by the way. No one is gonna listen to you. You're not gonna have any converts. And in fact, they're going to hate you. Wow, great start. But do it anyway. And that's what Jeremiah does, right? That's what the kind of a call to ministry looks like where you're saying come what may regardless of what they say i know that i have been called to be faithful in these pursuits that's what the call to ministry is faithful proclamation shepherding and stewardship and god does designate certain men to this work flip with me over to ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 i think this passage is certainly one these are all passages worth looking at but we need to read this text because it just locks down our understanding of what the call to ministry is. In this verse, he says, well, back up to verse seven, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And then he lists out different offices and different gift sets in the church. And in verse 12, he says, in another one, he gives some for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. He does that work. And just above, he says, and in order to accomplish that work, there are those who have been identified as being the pastors, those who have been identified as being the teachers. That's what the call to ministry is. So the question that we have to answer now, how do you know if you are one of those individuals? We've answered the question, what is the call of God to ministry? Now we have to answer our second question. How do you know if you have it? Now, I think there's a very important disclaimer that we need to start out as we, answer this, as we seek to answer this question. Okay? The process of determining a calling must be understood over the course of time. Right? This is not to be a casual entertainment of a decision that comes upon you like a stroke of genius. It is to be a, a settled, rooted confidence it's not a, a flash of lightning that lit, the lights up your soul all of a sudden as, you, as you're asleep and you wake up, sit straight up in bed, and you say, I'm called to ministry. It doesn't happen like that. It's always most obvious when you look back and you see the hand of God providentially guiding you along your pathway to this intended destination. The call of God is always very obvious when you look back. It's not always so obvious as you look forward. Okay, but there's not a moment in time where you're saying, boom, I'm called to the ministry. Bridges, again, he's a great writer. He says it this way, the call to ministry is tantamount to a mature calculation of a cost, right? You don't just decide to go out and and purchase a home based upon a whim. You You don't make a decision that large based upon just, you know, I think I should buy a house. You, If you have maturity you calculate the cost of the decision that you're making. And, and entering into the, the pathway in the field of ministry is the very same thing. So I just want that disclaimer to be put out there right up front for us, that this is something that, that ought to take place over the course of time. And it really is a pathway that, that you must walk down as you seek to answer these questions in your life. And it, it ought to rightly take you some time to, to work through all of this. Okay, So as we answer the question, how do you know if you have the call of God upon your life? I think there is one passage in particular that stands as a foundational point for us in answering this question. It's Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 2. And I w- I w- Go ahead and turn there with me, because I think it's important for us to look at that text together. I was talking to a very wise, seasoned, sort of an elder statesman, Uh, that is part of our ministry here. And he was talking about the way that the call of God is discerned in a particular foreign country. And he gave me this text. And he said, this fundamentally is the text that we drive all of our men to as we assess their call to the ministry. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2 sets up the expectation perfectly for us. Here it is. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What's he doing there? He's setting up from the get-go who's boss, right? Like he is king of, you know, everything. And then he asks this question. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that you think I should rest? What's he doing there? He's saying, here I am up here and here you are down there. What do you have that you think you can offer me? What do you have that you think you can do for me? What is it that causes you to think that you are able to do anything on your own accord that is able to actually serve me where I am up here? Very powerful setup rhetorically to what he says next. He says this, For my hand made everything, and thus everything came into being, declares the Lord. He's saying, I don't actually need anything. I don't need anything from you. (laughs) But here's the privilege despite the fact that I don't need anything, here is the kind of man to whom I will look to do something. Here it is. The one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That is the kind of a man that God is looking for. And that is the kind of man that has the privilege placed upon his life to do the work of God, not because God needs him, but because he has the fear of the Lord that causes him to want to serve the Lord. And and that emphasizes the the ultimate privilege that it is to be called into his service. You see, God doesn't need you. And as you assess your life, you have to start out with this very basic and fundamental understanding that, that God doesn't need you and your wonderful gift sets and your skills. What God needs is to know that you are a man who fears him enough to tremble when you open his word and to really tremble and to quake in your boots when you stand before people ready to open it. That's the fundamental qualification. Do you have a humility of spirit that recognizes the disaster that you are and the glory of who he is so that when you do have success in ministry, you will ascribe all of the glory not to yourself but rather to him. And the litmus test is your perspective on the authority of God's word. That is how you fundamentally know whether or not you're even able to embark down the pathway of answering this question of, do you have the call to ministry? Do you have enough humility to tremble at the word of God? Because if you don't, you're done. That's where we start. That's the foundation. It's the fundamental ground out of which any sense of true calling has to grow. Okay, but moving on from there, there are two halves that have been talked about throughout literature, pastoral literature, ever since the time of Calvin and even before then. Okay, two halves. There's an internal sense of calling, and there's an external affirmation of that calling. And both the internal sense and the external sense are both essential to identifying really what a ministry calling is to be. So let's walk through both of those halves here, okay? So we've set the foundation of how do you know if you have the call to ministry. Now let's look at the internal elements and then we'll turn and look at the external elements, okay? Number one, do you have a desire for the ministry, that's the very first foundational question. You can turn with me to find that question over to 1st Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. Okay? Turn there in your Bibles and as you're turning there, I remember very well when I was confronted with this very same question. It was when I was in high school and I was considering what the Lord would have me to do with my life, and I was thinking through this, and I, I, I grew up in a home where my dad was a pastor, my grandfather was a pastor, and one of my great-grandfathers was a pastor as well. So ministry was essentially all I knew. It was kind of in my blood. I grew up with a church key, literally, in my pocket, and I was in the church almost more than I was in my home. I mean, I grew up in the church. It was what I knew, and so when it came time to figure out, what am I going to do? do with my life. I remember my dad, who was a pastor, took me out to the golf course and, you know, as dads are, are, are wont to do at around hole number five, you know, exactly halfway through, you can usually expect that's where he's going to stick you with the question we came out here for. And that's where he did it, right? Right there halfway through the round, he just casually happens to mention, how do you know for certain that this is what God has for your life? And I gave him, you know, an answer commensurate with the maturity of a high schooler, I would imagine. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I will never forget what he said next. He said, you need to understand something very serious, that your generation looking into the future may be called upon to suffer for the name of Christ. And before you come to the end of your course, you may be called upon to give your very life for the name of Christ. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to intimidate you, but I do want you to reckon with the cost of what it is you're grasping at." And as a high school student, I'm saying, whoa. That's pretty serious stuff to have to wrestle with at a young age like that. But what he was getting at was wanting to ferret out, is your desire so strong that you would be willing to make that kind of a sacrifice if called upon or not? Because if the desire isn't strong enough to look at that and embrace it, then you're not called. It's a very wise question that he asked, and I'm grateful to this day for it. But it's that level of severity that we must wrestle with. And it's that kind of an attitude that stands behind this text here in chapter 3, verse 1 of First Timothy. Because Paul is essentially saying that very same thing to his disciple Timothy. He's saying, look, this is not going to be easy. It's going to be extremely hard. But here's what he says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. And it's interesting that Paul kind of starts out that sentence with that phrase, it is a trustworthy statement. He's essentially saying that's a euphemism for this is a commonly recognized maxim. This is a commonly recognized truth in the early church, right? The early church all understood that a calling into the service of the Lord began with a desire. This was their fundamental litmus test, right? And he uses a couple of words there in this verse to talk about that. The first is the Greek word orego, which means to stretch out to the very max, to touch or to grasp something. Are you willing to stretch yourself out? Are you so eager that you will go after it? To get this. And then he uses the word epithumeto, which in the New Testament literature can be used both positively or negatively, right? It can mean to, it, well, it does mean to set your heart upon something strongly, to desire something voraciously. It can even mean to lust after in a negative sense or to covet something. But that kind of strength is the kind of desire he's talking about here, where you're, you're reaching out and grabbing onto something, you're desiring it extremely strongly. And the point he's saying is that, essentially, there can be no other course of action that you could feasibly take. What is the source of this desire? Well, the source of the desire has to be your love for Christ, the the Lord of the church. The desire he's talking about here is not just the desire for the office of an overseer. It is a desire for the work that he desires to do. And that's why Paul clarifies it in the back half of the verse. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, here it is, it is a fine work that he desires to do. You see, the desire, the strong desire, the stretching out to grasp onto, it's not grasping onto the office of a pastor or a preacher of someone in ministry. It's, It's a desire to grasp and hold onto the work. And what is that work? It is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And therefore the fundamental desire must grow out of a fundamental love for him. And so you must ask yourself the question, is my desire rooted in my own covetous pride of wanting to hold an office and hold certain authorities? Or is my desire rooted and grounded in the reality that I love Christ and I must see people conformed into his image. I must see them made complete in Christ. I must do it. There is nothing else for me to do but to do that. See, it has to grow out of a love for the Lord, a love for Jesus Christ. Preachers, pastors, those who are called to the work of Ephesians chapter 4 are those who preach Christ and Him crucified and nothing else. It's the glory of God so burned upon the front of your mind that you can't see anything but a vision of the glory of Christ that must be delivered once for all to the saints of God. And when you put your hand to a non-ministry endeavor, here's a practical question. Is there a restlessness that won't leave you alone, along with an accompanying compulsion to do anything that advances the work of God? Or are you content to just do that thing? If you are content, keep doing that thing. But if you're not content and you have a desire that says, I must go do something more to advance his work, then you need to take the next step, which is this. It's another internal step. Are you qualified? So step one, do you have a desire? Step two, are you qualified? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 says this, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Notice in that verse, who is the one who examines the heart? It is God. Who is the one who approves us for the work of preaching the gospel? It is God. Two times in that one verse, we're told it is God who is the one who qualifies you for his work and for his service. The judge is not you, the judge is not men, and if you've hidden your life behind false walls and facades, it doesn't matter, because the Lord of heaven sees the reality of your life, and he is the one who examines and then approves, as First Thessalonians 2.4 says. First 1 Timothy 1.12 says it this way, he judged me faithful. There it is. He is the one who does the work of qualification, and he therefore appointed me to his service. Well, When the Lord does this work of judging us faithful or examining our hearts or approving us, what is he looking for? Those lists are given to us in the passages of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, right? Where he gives this list and the very first qualification of 1 Timothy 3 is that a man must be above reproach. It means that he must be fundamentally qualified in his lifestyle, that there is nothing in his life that someone in the world could reach out to and grab on. The Greek word there literally means to be without handles. There's no handles hanging on to your life where you can grab them and yank that person down into the dirt, thereby destroying not only his name, but the name of Christ as well. That's what it means to be qualified. Pastor John says it this way, time and truth always go hand in hand. And when I first started working for him almost 10 years ago, I thought to myself, I wonder if that's actually true. And then time and time and time again, as we look at different ministry scandals taking place and pastors where you look at their life and you say something doesn't quite square there they end up exposing themselves because the reality of who they are internally comes out. So before you ever embark upon the pathway and end up bringing shame and disgrace to the name of Christ, evaluate your life to see if you truly be qualified. We We will often say around here as we're discussing different men who have failed in ministry because of a lack of qualification, that gifts have taken them where character could not keep them. You see, you may be gifted, but if you are not qualified, you have nothing. Your ministry is aborted if it before it starts, if your life is not that of a man who is walking worthy of his God. Spurgeon said it this way, it is a fearful calamity to a man to miss his calling and to the church upon whom he imposes himself because his mistake involves an affliction of the most grievous kind. You have to answer these questions. Do you have a desire and are you qualified, okay? Now we turn to the external factors and I know I'm just plowing through a lot of stuff here, but I have to, okay? The external factors, number one, are you gifted? This is kind of the third question. Now on the external side that you have to ask, are you gifted for the work of the ministry? It's one of my privileges here at the seminary to teach a preaching course, one each semester, right? And guys will start in that first lab and I will sometimes wonder to myself, what am I supposed to do with you? I mean, there was one guy, I'm telling you here, where there was one guy one semester where I thought to myself, oh, this poor brother. You know, some people, they've got, they've got trouble connecting their points to their proposition. Right? Then some people have trouble connecting their paragraphs so that one flows into the next. This poor guy had trouble connecting the words to each other so that the sentences made sense. And I'm sitting there in his opening sermon in preaching lab saying, I don't think I can fix this. Like, this guy's just clearly not gifted. How in the world did he get through three years of seminary when nobody caught this? And it was really rough. But over the course of the entire year, he grew in his giftedness so much that he ended up by the end of the semester, I mean, he was no Chuck E. Spurgeon, right? But he was, he was good. And I thought, you know, if there was nobody else in town, I could listen to this guy. And he is, he is faithful. It's not excellent. But it's It's true. And he is gifted and he has grown in his giftedness. So I I give you that story just to tell you the fact that as you seek to answer the question, are you gifted? That does not mean that you need to picture yourself in the pulpit of John MacArthur, right? And say, yes, I've got that kind of goods. That's not what I mean by gifted, right? He is super gifted, okay? But when you're assessing your own giftedness for ministry, you just look at it and you say, do I have the fundamental abilities where 1 Timothy 3, 2, I am able to teach, Okay, giftedness does not equal calling because there are men of meager talents who are faithful and can be effective pastors. Meanwhile, there are men who have the talents of a rock star, but they end up flaming out, right? So so giftedness is not the sum total of calling, but it is a very significant piece of the equation that you must wrestle through. You see, if you have a desire, but you don't have the capacity, that is futility. But if you have the capacity without the desire, it's gonna lead you to a life of oppression, Okay? You must have both the desire and the capacity. Giftedness is nothing more than just a simple external conformation. It's not to be a, a normative baseline. There's not a particular threshold of gifting where we say, well, now he's qualified. But in general, do you have the capacities necessary to engage in the work of ministry? And if you do, you also have a commensurate responsibility to exercise those gifts. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 instructs us that way. And here's the important part, okay? You are not the one best qualified to assess your own giftedness. Self-assessment and spiritual gift tests don't provide you with the answer of whether or not you're competent for ministry. Okay, where does this work come from? It's not you because the heart is desperately wicked and who can trust it. It's not even a spiritual gift testing because I don't even know what that's trying to do. The way it works is through the confirmation of the church. This is how you know if you're gifted. And that's kind of the fourth external criteria. The fourth criteria, the second on the external side, have you been confirmed? You see, your own motives and feelings can be clouded or improperly perceived. Proverbs 28, 26 tells us that he who trusts his own heart is a fool. Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And there is nothing more destructive to ministry than individualism. Because why? You, again, going back to the beginning, do not place yourself into ministry. God is the one who puts you there, and you have a responsibility not to yourself and to your own desires, but to the body of Christ. And we see this all over in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 3.10 says, Let them first be tested before they're appointed. Titus 1.5 tells us that the early church had a process by which they chose leaders for service in the church. Acts 16.2, Timothy's first baby steps into ministry came only after he had been well spoken of by the brethren. 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with, here it is, the laying on of the hands by the counsel of the elders, as the ESV translates it. Okay, So it's very important that not only there be gifting, but there also be confirmation of that gifting, not by yourself, because you don't put yourself there, but by your church and the men and the spiritual leaders to whom you are accountable. These are the ways by which you can know that you are called to ministry. Do you have a desire? Are you qualified? Are you gifted? And have you been confirmed? You've got to walk down that checklist and say, these are the things that I must wrestle with as I assess whether or not I am called to ministry. Now, as you're sitting here this morning and you may be saying to yourself, I do have a raging desire to see the glory of Christ on display. I do believe by God's grace that the pattern of my life is one that seeks to honor him above all else. And there are no glaring areas of sinfulness in my life. I mean, there are places that I may struggle, but the trajectory of my life is one that seeks to honor Christ. You may be sitting here saying, yes, I do believe that I am called to ministry. And I I, I find that desire growing as I exercise those gifts in my current church. And you may be sitting here next to your pastor and he may be elbowing you a little bit saying, hey, get up and answer the altar call already. Right? That may be you. Okay? And if you are here this morning and you're answering these questions, and, you, and you're asking the question now, saying, well, okay, I do think I'm called to ministry. Well, what should I do about it? Okay, here are some general principles for what you should do about this if you do believe you're called to ministry. Okay? Number one, guard your life guard your calling the very first thing you must do with your calling if you have it is to guard it 1 Corinthians 9:27 Paul says I do not run aimlessly I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified he's saying guard your life guard your calling Okay, 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, Paul instructs Timothy again, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. If you are called into the privilege of serving God by serving him in a full-time kind of a capacity, opening his word and teaching it to others, there is a stricter judgment that comes upon you, but there's also a greater privilege that comes as well. And so you must see that as the treasure that it is and you must protect it at all costs. You must do anything and everything that it takes to make sure that nothing derails that calling. You must guard it. You must protect it. The second thing that you must do about a calling to ministry is that you must depend upon it. The reason I say this is because the pathway is very hard. It's one of my privileges here in my role at the seminary to watch hundreds of men coming through the school every single year. And I'm here to tell you that every single one of them has a huge story behind him of difficulty and, and challenge that he has had to overcome. It is hard to be prepared for ministry. It is hard to walk the pathway of entering into it. And you must be convinced before you engage in this course of action. But once you are convinced of your calling, you must cling to it and you must look back to it And you must say, I must face the future and the challenges and the difficulties and the trials that the Lord is bringing into my way because I know that he has called me to this work and I dare not abandon the course that he has called me to. And when challenge and hardship and difficulty comes your way, there is a great sense of of being convinced that this is what God has. And therefore there is a resolute spirit that comes with you as you seek to face the trials, knowing that those trials are actually shaping you into the man of God that he has you fit to be right? It's the trials that shape you. And if you have a calling, you'll see them that way, if you're convinced of that calling. But if you're not convinced of the calling, the trials will no longer shape you. They will flush you out of the system. You you must be convinced of the fact that this is the path that God has me on. Because once he he puts you on that path, he will bring hardship and it will shape you. And you must be able to fall back and rely upon the fact that he has called you to this pathway. Okay? The third thing you must do is to exercise it. Guard it, depend upon it and then exercise it. You see, this is just simply saying be faithful in a little. We all look at a man like John MacArthur who's been at this church for 50 years and we look at the scope and the breadth of his ministry and you say, well, how did that happen and how could I ever how could I ever, ever possibly do that? Well, the chances are you won't ever do that, first of all. Let's just get that out there from the get-go, okay? That's a unique way that God has used him. He's, he's not the gold standard for what God is gonna do with you and your life. But instead of reaching for the stars and saying, that's got to be the, the sum total impact of my life, instead, just be faithful with, God as, with, with what God has put before you here today, even now. And that may look like just being faithful and in, in organizing the nursery duty, right? If God has given you that particular task in your church, do that better than anyone else. You see, to become a man of God, you must first be a man of God. Seminary is not a salvific experience where you're changed and made into something that you once weren't, okay? When you come into seminary or come into training, you must be the right kind of man. You must already be a man of God so that you may down the road become a man of God. But if you're not a man of God to begin with, you're not going to be changed into that man just by getting some additional training, Okay? You need to be exercising your giftedness. You need to be exercising your godliness, growing in your sanctification, ever, even while you're preparing for that lifetime in ministry. You don't go to seminary to get the gifts. You go to seminary to get training in how to use those gifts. And before you even think about getting any kind of training, you need to be consistently engaged in exercising those gifts. Okay? So if you believe you're called to ministry, start by guarding it because you don't want to lose it. Depend upon it because it will strengthen your backbone and then exercise it with every single opportunity you get and either your desire will decrease or it will be further inflamed. Those are things you must do. The fourth and final thing I would say to you what to do about a call to ministry is to prepare for it. Okay. Now there are a lot of different kinds of preparation, but you must be educated to receive the education, and a serious calling requires a, a serious kind of excel, a, a, an education. And, and Siri just turned on my phone here. That's not helpful. Nah. Siri, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about serious callings require serious educations. <laughs> okay? When you're looking at how to prepare for ministry, you must have an education now when I say education, I don't necessarily mean you must have a seminary education, okay? Seminary just happens to be the most effective and the fastest way to get to the intended destination. But there are men who are able to be educated for ministry without going through that process. Whatever you do, however, you must be prepared, You must be educated in theology and in the the contents of Scripture and in the ways of pastoral ministry. That preparation must take place. And and whatever form it takes place in your life, it must take place. That's that's the fundamental reality that that exists. Because this calling is is deadly serious. And therefore, it requires a serious education. So if you're looking at that education, if you're looking at that process of, of preparation... Don't allow yourself to settle for second best or for least expensive. Raise the bar because the bar is already set high. The calling is what it is, and you need to be best prepared for it. So go and do what you must do and demand the best no matter the cost. And you will find the Lord as you walk in faithfulness to him. He will, he will organize and provide and direct your way to make sure that you have the resources necessary to get the preparedness for that which he's called you to. Either he has called you or he has not. And if he has called you, he's not going to leave you holding the bill for something, right? You see, God always pays for what he orders. And that is a really very true statement. I remember as a brand new seminarian, I, I told this story last night. So if you were there, I'm sorry. If you weren't, it's a great story. I landed on the ground in Southern California and I did not know a single soul here. Knew no one, had no job leads, had no money. I'd been married for less than six months, and I walk into my apartment and I write the first check, and my bank account is empty. And I'm saying, okay, this is not good. The Lord really needs to provide. And again, it was my dad who kept saying to me, the Lord always pays for what he orders. Do you believe that you were called into ministry? Yes, dad, we already covered that back in the golf course. Do you believe that you need to be prepared for that ministry? Yes, Dad, I believe that. Do you believe that the school where you're attending is the very best school for that preparation of ministry? Yes, Dad, I believe that. Then the Lord has written up the purchase order. Who are you to doubt whether or not he's going to pay for it? Wow, Dad, but the bank account is still empty. (laughs) And it was on the day that I wrote my last check for month two of rent, where I'm saying, this is going to bounce because there ain't no money in the bank. The Lord provided a job. And it was like I had jumped off a cliff and he said to me, trust me, wait for it. Trust me, wait for it. And I'm screaming to myself, yeah, but the ground is getting real close. And right before I went splat, he grabs me and says, see, you needed to learn that you could trust me. It's amazing. God will provide your way as you seek to be faithful in following him into ministry, okay? The shortest, deepest, most expedient way to that training is in a seminary setting. So very quickly here as we wrap our time up together, what do you, what do you look for in a seminary education or in a, in a professional kind of serious educational process to get down to the destination as quickly as possible? What do you look for? Well, here's what you look for. Number one, a school that prioritizes the calling and the idea of personal holiness. Some schools are degree mills. You need a school that's gonna prioritize your life and not just your mind. Look for a school that's gonna aim at your heart and not just your head. That's what you must have because ministry is not about what you know, it's about who you are and what God has called you to do. Second, you must look for a school that prioritizes the preaching of the word. Don't go to a school where they're messing around with all kinds of things. Go to a school where they have one overarching predominant focus. If you are called to preach the gospel, go to a school that will equip you to do exactly that. Okay? Make sure that that's their focus. Number three, go to a school that is clearly defined theologically. Find a place that's going to teach you what the truth of Scripture is. Don't go to a place that's going to teach you all the different erroneous perspectives on theology and then let you pick like you're at a country buffet. That's not what seminary is, right? Look at the scriptures, define the truth, and then hang on to it. Go find a school that's gonna do that for you. Fourth, find a school that advocates for a clear and consistent hermeneutic, okay? What I mean by that is one way of approaching the text. There are multiple different ways of approaching the text, multiple different ways of interpreting the scriptures and different commentators, different denominations, different churches of different backgrounds all utilize different kinds of hermeneutics, You need to understand what is the right way of approaching the text and where is the school that will teach me exactly how to do that that way, where all of the faculty approach the text the same way so that they all end up at the same kind of destination. Where is that school? And then finally, find a school that prioritizes exposure to the local church because men, you're training for a lifetime, not just in ministry, but ministry to people, and people are in the church. And therefore, to receive your training divorced from the people makes no kind of sense at all. You need the other half of the education, which is practical pastoral life, not just the head and the heart knowledge. Okay. So these are just some things to kind of give you some direction as you're thinking through, how do I get prepared for a lifetime in ministry? Guard it, depend on it, exercise it, prepare for it. If you're called to ministry, these are the things that you must do. Never forget, as Charles Spurgeon says, that God had one son and he made him a preacher. If that's your calling, cling to it and go get it done. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your ministry. It is a privilege to all of us to even be able to consider that reality And so as we look to it and as we seek to discern whether or not you have called us to reach for that and grasp onto it, may may these principles guide and govern the hearts of these men as they seek to make this great determination in obeying you to the calling that you have placed upon their life. May they have confidence, boldness, and may they, without looking back, put their hand to the plow of whatever it is you've called them to and eagerly run the race that's been set before them. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.